declare, we declare that you alone are holy. Father, you are worthy of all praise and glory. Father, we, um, I heard this uh, prayed. Father, we just recognize and know that you are in control of all things, that you are in charge, that, that, that the truth is that nothing is impossible with you. There are things that are impossible with us as, as humans, but there's nothing that is impossible with you. And so we are, are joining together and asking and praying that there would be just a mighty move of your spirit, that this COVID virus would just completely be eradicated in Jesus' name. That there would be such a move where, where people just can't deny that it was you who moved in power, that it was you who just took care of this. Um, God, would you, just asking in the name of Jesus that you would wipe this out. That there would be health and strength, that people would walk in uh, the strength of the Lord, the strength, your strength, God. And God, that uh, this would be uh, such an opportunity uh, for people's hearts to be turned to you, Jesus. And so we pray for revival in West Michigan. We pray for revival in our land, God, that, that hearts would be softened to your son, Jesus. That they would recognize, God, that you so love them that you sent your only son to die for them, to pay the death that, that they deserve to die. Uh, but you took care of it so that they could have life and have life everlasting. And so I pray for a softening of hearts. I pray for um, just a, a move of your spirit for people to turn from their wicked ways and turn to you, King Jesus. And I pray that that would start with us, that our hearts would be surrendered to you, that our hearts would be laid down uh, right before you, God. That we would uh, want to follow you in every aspect of our lives, that we would uh, surrender to you, that we would uh, follow your spirit's leading in, in every aspect of our lives. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been going through uh, the book of Hebrews. And uh, if, you're, if you have a Bible uh, with you, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, I'm actually going to read a, a good chunk of it right now at the very beginning. Um, and then share a couple things. So Hebrews uh, chapter 3. Words are also going to be up on the screen. But uh, I just encourage you, whether you have a phone or... Uh, just an actual hard copy of, of the Bible. Open it up, follow along, highlight things, underline things. Um, I just find that to be extremely, extremely useful. So here's what the, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house. As a son. And we are his house, and if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. So take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, 
If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those who heard and yet rebelled. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. There's a lot there. I was struck by verse 12. And one of the questions that I want to ask is, like, why, why do we do what we do? Why do we go through really the effort to, to put up chairs, the effort to make coffee, the effort to, to meet together in this space? Why do we, we find it so valuable to come together in worship, to, to meet together like this, or to meet together, whether it's in a smaller group uh, on a Wednesday or on a Friday? Why, why do we do this, and why did the writer of, of Hebrews really write this to this early group of followers of Jesus who were kind of starting to, 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 to sway, to, to go back to their ways uh, that they found before? And I think that the key is, so, uh, is in verse 12. Here is this, this warning that uh, the writer gives to uh, this, this original audience. He says this, Take care, brothers and sisters. Let there be in, a, in, a, in, a, in an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. I mean, there, there's a huge concern. He doesn't want anyone to, to fall away from the living God. And so he says, come together and exhort one another or encourage one another every single day, as long as it is called today. And so one of the things that we can do, and the most powerful things that we can do, is come together, is to talk face-to-face, is to encourage one another, because there is this huge warning, and warning signs are there for a reason. If you're driving along the road and you see a sign with, I think it's with like a semi on two wheels, and with a little turn, it means that the turn is going to be pretty sharp, and don't go too fast. I mean, warnings are there for a reason to watch out, to be careful, to take heed. And the writer of Hebrews is saying... Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I know that brings up a bunch of questions. Can you fall away from the living God? What does that all look like? I don't know all those answers to that question, but I know that the warning sign is huge here. Be careful. Pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to your life so that you're not falling back, so that you're not going back to the ways that you were once living now, this was written to a, a group of people that were uh, raised in the Jewish faith, in Judaism. And they were going back to their old ways of Judaism. And, and there's not many people in this room who are going back to their old ways of Judaism. But there is always this, this pull back to maybe your former ism in your life. Maybe paganism. Maybe you just were really giving your life to this world. There's always this pull to go back or maybe even to religiosityism or whatever. To go back to just going to church and just sort of doing things just to check a box. There's always this pull back and the writer is encouraging them and us today. Be careful. Be careful. Don't go back. Don't go back. And how does he encourage people 2,000 years ago and how does he encourage us today? And I find it very interesting. He makes this comparison, and he raises really a question in life, like, who is greater? And he makes this comparison between uh, Jesus and Moses. And he says, Jesus is so much greater than Moses. 
Now, when I was reading this this week, I was drawn back to a conversation that I had with uh, some middle school boys who absolutely love basketball, still love basketball. And we got into this uh, debate back and forth. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Now, I know, like, women, they probably don't get into that debate, that kind of conversation. But, guys, we were, we were in that conversation. We were in that debate. And they talked about LeBron James and how he is definitely the most amazing basketball player of all time. He's got to be the most amazing and, like, the best basketball player of all time. And I was sitting at Burger King on the south side of Holland, and I opened up my phone with them. And I said, let me introduce you to the best basketball player of all time. <laughs> And we watched highlight after highlight of about 20, 30 minutes of Michael Jordan. And I'm convinced that Michael Jordan is the best basketball player of all time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And they were like, no, LeBron, this, this, and this, and this. And I'm like, no, there was just a way that he could take over the game. He's definitely, definitely the greatest. There you go. Amen. The writer of, of Hebrews is entering into this and he's saying, let me introduce you to the one who is greatest. The one who is greater. The one who is the greatest of all time. And the statement that he makes is actually a pretty um, shocking statement that, that Jesus is greater than Moses. Because in order to understand what he's saying, and in order to understand how he wants to encourage them, we have to understand who Moses was. I don't know if you remember the story of Moses. And you go all the way back to Genesis, the end of Genesis, and, and jo- Joseph is there in, in Genesis. And he was the one who was sold into slavery by his brothers. He had this dream, and he told his brothers one day that you're going to bow down to me, and, and they get a little bit mad about that, that uh, they had this, he had this dream, and uh, that they were going to bow down to him one day. And so they, they do what uh, maybe brothers do, and they kind of uh, you know, get on his case, but they went a little too far, and they sold him into slavery. And uh, he goes to, ends up in Egypt, and he's in Egypt, and then there's this famine in the land, and his brothers come to Egypt because Egypt is the only place that has food because of Joseph's decisions. And he is elevated into power in Egypt, and so they come to Egypt, and uh, there the people of God uh, are living at the end of Genesis. The beginning of Exodus opens up, and it's about a couple hundred years later, and there's this promise that God is going to bring his people into the promised land. But Joseph has uh, died, has passed away, and there is a, a king or a leader in Egypt that doesn't know Joseph anymore, that forgets him. And so the people of God are enslaved and they're working hard, and there was a young man who was born named Moses. Moses had an incredible birth, entr- entrance into this world, but because uh, the, the Pharaoh, the, the leader of Egypt, was intimidated by the Israelites, was having every uh, boy under two years old uh, killed. Moses was born in that time, and, and I love that Moses' parents didn't obey the king, didn't obey Pharaoh, and instead had Moses... But then when uh, it got a little bit difficult to raise and put him in the Nile River, he went down the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter found him and raised him. And for 40 years of Moses' life, he was educated in Egypt. He was given the best education. It was actually said that he spoke well. But we don't know much about the first 40 years of his life. And I often wonder what went through Moses' mind and his heart as he saw his people being uh, treated horribly by Pharaoh, horribly by the Egyptians. Well, at 40 years old, he makes a decision after he sees someone mistreating one of his people, the Israelites, and he kills an Egyptian. And he thought he was the only one who could see this, and um, another person did see it. And Pharaoh gets word of this. 
and so uh, wants to kill Moses, and so Moses runs into the desert. And for the next 40 years of Moses' life, he's in the desert, wandering in the desert. He gets married, he has a son, and he lives a pretty simple existence for 40 years. Just that middle time of his life in the desert. And I wonder, too, what happened, was going on through Moses' mind. What was he thinking? Is this it? Is this my, my life? I'm just out in the desert? And I heard somebody say this, that, that God took Moses into the desert to get Egypt out of him. And so for 40 years, there he was, living his life. And at the age of 80, at 80 years old, God appears to him in that burning bush. And says, come back and deliver my people. I've heard the cries of my people. I want to rescue my people. And so God raises up Moses to deliver, to go back into Egypt. And uh, he, uh, wor God works through Moses and delivers his people from slavery. Moses was this phenomenal leader of the Israelites. He delivered them through the plagues. God, God moved in a powerful way. They, they leave Egypt. They're going into the, the desert, into the wilderness, and uh, they're going, and they see the Egyptians behind them. They come up on the, the Red Sea, and Moses uh, taps the water, and the seas part. I mean, amazing, amazing things happen. And here was Moses, one who was uh, just the stories were told of Moses. People looked up to Moses. He was definitely the greatest. There was no debate. Moses was it. Moses was the greatest of all time in Israel. But then the writer is saying, he is great, not to take anything away from him, but there is one who is greater. And so he says, consider Jesus, which the writers would have been, the, the, the hearers would have been like, this is absolutely amazing. Consider Jesus uh, more glory, getting more glory than Moses. They would have been blown away by that. But then what does the writer say in comparison with Moses? Moses was faithful. Moses was uh, a servant. In Numbers, actually, chapter 12, there's this interesting interaction between God, Moses, and Aaron and Miriam, where we hear what God thinks about Moses. And he says, there's no one like Moses who I speak face to face. He is faithful in all that he does as a servant. But then the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is different. Consider Jesus. And I want us this morning to consider Jesus. Which doesn't mean just take a glance at Jesus. It means have our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Consider Jesus. It says, the apostle, the one who was sent from God with authority, and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in God's house. And the writer goes on and he says, here's the difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses was a servant, a faithful servant, but Jesus is the son, the son who has been given all things, the son who has all power, the son who has all authority. Moses was a servant in God's house. Jesus is the builder of the house. Jesus is the one who is, is doing the work. And yeah, go back many, many years, and Moses was this incredible leader, this incredible servant who was so absolutely faithful. But it was actually Jesus' Jesus's power who was working this plan out in Israel's life. Moses was a servant, but Jesus was the one who was working it all into completion. He was the one who was actually building the house. And he goes on and says, Jesus was just a member, or Moses was just a member of the house. And Jesus is actually God. And so consider, consider Jesus. And so for us today, like to consider Jesus and consider all that we have in Jesus. I want to go back into Hebrews chapter 2 just a little bit. 
and look at all that we have been given in Jesus. Because this morning and every week when we come together, we need to consider Jesus and all that we receive. Because often I think we take it for granted. We think, oh, we've heard this before, but I want us to remind us of all that we have received in Jesus. Look at Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 11. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things existed, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is the reminder of salvation. That the one who created everything, the one who holds everything in the palm of his hands, Jesus, made himself a little bit lower than the angels for a time. Suffered the death that we deserve so that through his death, through his suffering, we might be made perfect. When it comes to your life and my life, too often we think about the things that we either do or don't do. And I think that's a way for us to get sidetracked from considering Jesus. Every day we have to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he accomplished in our life. Consider Jesus that you and I are made holy and are being made holy by his suffering, by the work that he did. It goes on in Hebrews 2. And this is absolutely amazing, starting at verse 14. Talking about Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same thing, speaking of Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, we, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation covering our sin for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And again, the amazing description of Jesus. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Came to deliver us from, from slavery. Those who are enslaved by this fear of death. And Jesus conquered the grave, conquered death. So that you and I don't have to live in that fear anymore. And sure, we will pass by that. We go through that process called death. But you and I, for, as, as people who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, we go on from living face-to-face or in, in relationship with Jesus to living face-to-face with him. We go from life to life. And death, all of a sudden, because of Jesus, doesn't become an issue anymore. We're free from that bondage, from that slavery, that fear of death. He also, as a great high priest, represents us to God. But then I love that in verse 18, because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows us. Because he lived the life that we are living, he knows what we're going through. And so we have one who we can go to and say, hey, we need help. We need guidance. And we're not talking to someone who has no idea what we're going through. Instead, he knows exactly what we're going through. And so to close, I just have three questions. I want us to wrestle with this morning. And the first is this. As the author is saying, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the greatest. Worthy of so much more glory. I want to ask you and I want to ask me, who is the greatest in your life? Who or what is the greatest in your life? There is always this pull. There's always this, this wrestle for the throne of our hearts. 
There's always this, this battle going back and forth, like who are we going to surrender to? Are we going to surrender to our own wills, to our own desires, or are we going to surrender every single day to King Jesus? Are we going to lay it all down for King Jesus because do we believe truly that he is the greatest? I also think when it comes to our life, sin, the things that we've done, we tend to make those things the greatest in our lives instead of the work that Jesus has done. We're reminded often by the enemy what we've done, who we are, and all of this stuff. And we tend to make that the greatest instead of who Jesus says we are. That because of his blood, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. So who or what is the greatest in your life? Who is sitting on the throne of your heart today? Not tomorrow, today. Who is the greatest in your life? Secondly, where in your life do you need to trust Jesus more? Where in your life do you need to trust Jesus more? At the end of chapter 3, there's this whole back and forth about unbelief in our lives. Unbelief in the Israelites. And this is what blows me away. The Israelites were delivered by the hand of God through Moses. They were rescued from slavery. They were brought into the, the wilderness, brought out. And all of a sudden, they come across the Red Sea. And they start complaining, did you just bring us out here to die by our enemies? And God works in a powerful, powerful way, parts the Red Sea. They walk through, and their enemies are crushed as the water covers them. Then they get a little bit further, and they start complaining, we're hungry. We have nothing to eat. So God provides food, provides uh, meat for them. And then in Exodus chapter 17, they're like, hey, we're thirsty. We're absolutely thirsty. And I don't know if you've ever been in a car with kids when they get thirsty. It's the only thing that they can talk about. I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. I was reminded of a time when we were in the car and the kids were thirsty and we had nothing to drink. And Cece, in all of her wisdom and glory, she just turns around and says, what do you want me to do, spit in your mouth? (laughs) And so I hear their complaining. I hear the Israelites complaining. I hear them just like screaming like, we're thirsty, we're thirsty. And they lose faith. Unbelief creeps up. But here's the thing. 1 Corinthians 10 says these things are written so that we can be reminded. These things are written as an example. So that we can be reminded so that we don't give in to evil. So that we don't fall into temptation. And so we can't think too highly of ourselves thinking that there's no way that we won't slip into unbelief. And so we have to war actively against unbelief in our hearts. And so where is there unbelief in your heart? I think that is the number one thing in our lives. That is the root of every sin is unbelief. That we don't believe in Jesus in this area or that area of our life. And so we have to constantly be at war to root out unbelief in our heart. Go back to Genesis 3. The very root, the very first sin. When the the enemy came to Eve. What did he say? Did God really say? He rose up unbelief in her heart. And all throughout scripture and all throughout history. The enemy wants to rise up unbelief in her heart. And so where is their unbelief in your heart? I love the prayer that the man prayed in Mark chapter 9 when he was face to face with Jesus. And he had a son that was completely filled with demons. And Jesus asked him, do you believe I have the power to deliver your son? And his response was simple. I believe, help my unbelief. I think that is something that we need to pray every day. Jesus, I believe in this part of my life. I believe you to be powerful or to to be this, this and this and this. But there are other areas of my life where I have to grow in faith. And so fill my heart with faith. Fill my heart with with faith over and over and over and over again. Let faith arise in me. So where is there unbelief in you? 
I'm not saying that, I mean, this is a, an area that all of us need to grow in. You know, all of us have this. Where is there unbelief in your heart? Where do you need to grow in faith when it comes to following Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is powerful enough to totally wipe out COVID on the globe? I mean, I, I, just, I was wrestling with that this week. Do I actually believe that God is, is powerful enough to do that? Do I think that God is powerful enough to provide in my life? Do I believe that God is powerful enough to, to get a hold of my kids' hearts? Do I, do I believe that God is powerful enough to use me? Do I believe that, that God is powerful enough to use all of us? Sometimes we allow unbelief to creep in. And that is why we need this. And this is the last question. Who are you encouraging? And I put it that way for a very specific reason. Because too often we look at ourselves and we say, I need to be encouraged. I need to be encouraged. And we all do. But God has you here for a reason to encourage one another. And this is what the author says. Here's the problem, unbelief. How do you conquer unbelief? How do you get through that? Is to come together and to encourage one another. To say, hey, consider Jesus. Get your eyes focused on Jesus. And here's the awesome thing is this doesn't take rocket science to pull off. This is a very simple thing. And we all can do this. And we can all come alongside and say, hey, what's going on in your life? And then encourage and push one another to say, hey, consider Jesus. Get your eyes focused on Jesus. And so this is what we want this to be about. is a time where we encourage one another. Call things out in one another for the good and the bad. Say, hey, I see this in your life. Awesome, keep going. Or I see this in your life. Hey, you need to turn. We need to come together and encourage one another as long as it is today, which is every day, right? Over and over and over again. And I can't imagine what would happen as we come together and just get our eyes focused on Jesus over and over and over again. So here's what I want to do. I want to have Ellie and Anna and Noah come back up. And they're going to sing uh, this song, Promises, and invite us to sing as well. I want all of us this morning to again consider Jesus. To get our eyes focused on Jesus. But I also want you to pray and ask this, ask God this. Who do you need to encourage today? Who do you need to speak life into today? Because the cool thing is we step out and speak life into people. There will be people who speak life into us. We'll be encouraged. But who do you need to encourage? One of the most powerful times of our gatherings are after we get done singing and people are playing basketball and people are talking. I mean, that is just as important as coming together like this. And so look for opportunities to encourage one another. And so I want to pray and give some silence. And I want you to ask, God, who do I need to encourage? Who do you want me to speak to? Who do you want me to speak life to? Thank you that you are not just a faithful servant, you're a faithful son. Thank you, Jesus, that you are building a house, and you who began a good work is going to be faithful to complete it. Thank you that we are a part of that house, and, and the very fact that of that house is that you, Jesus, dwell in the midst of us. 
That God, you don't live in a temple built by human hands, but you live uh, here in the midst of your people. Your spirit dwells in the midst of your people. And so we praise you for that. We thank you that uh, you have given us a body. A body that is, is there to encourage one another. To challenge one another. So God, I pray that we would be a place um, that is just so encouraging to one another. A place where we are all speaking life into one another and encouraging people to surrender more to you, King Jesus. And Jesus, I've absolutely blown away and just been so thankful for all that we have in you. That you consider us uh, your brothers and sisters. That we are our family. That you have taken our, our sin and you've covered it through your blood. Thank you that you defeated the works of the devil. That you've conquered sin and death. And that if our faith is in you, that we can walk around victorious. Not filled with fear, but filled with so much faith as we follow you and we, as we see your kingdom come in powerful, powerful ways. And so I ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would use us to encourage one another. So lead us and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.